Thanks for listening to the Grace Life Podcast. Marriage isn't easy. Most of us didn't grow up with a template for a successful marriage. We look at couples who seem to have it all and wonder, how did they get there? Or, we want to be married. Or, we have a marriage behind us that didn't succeed and are looking for hope for the future. This series is for everyone. Those who are married, want to be married, or were married as we take a look at God's intention for marriage. part three of a series we've been doing about marriage. We have a very, very simple goal in mind. We want to have the best marriages possible that would make the world look at us and be jealous. That they would be jealous of what we have and then we would have the opportunity to say, hey, look, we're messed up people too. The only way we have this is because of God. Let me tell you what God's done in my life. That's the goal. That's what we're after. And so hopefully that's, that's what you're working toward. That's what we've been uh, designing the entire series around. I grew up the youngest of three siblings. I am the baby. Do I have any other babies in the family with me this morning? You want to admit to it? Good. Is anyone else also equally cursed and punished like I was? I was the only boy. So my two older siblings were the other gender. Anybody the only gender of that? There you go. You were the baby and the only gender. Wow. We should have like a support group. Us. Yeah, we're going to get together for coffee this week. So here's what happens. No matter what is going on, because I had two sisters, girls will always agree. They were closer in age than I was, so they're always going to agree. And I was just left out. It was two against one, no matter what it was. If we get into the car and start fighting over what radio station we're going to play, guess who won? They did. We sit down to watch TV, and I'm going like, Gilligan's Island. I mean, come on, anybody knows anybody that age? Come on. And, and, and they were like, facts of life. They won, which is why I'm probably the only man my age who knows who Mindy Cohen is. But anyway, that's another story for another day. You don't need to know who that is because you should not have been tortured with facts of life as you were growing up. If we got into a fight, this is the only time someone was ever on my side is if the two of them were at each other's throats and they needed me to tip the scales, right? That's how that would go. And they would offer to play Legos with me if I would vote in their favor of wherever it is they wanted to go or whatever they wanted to do. That's kind of how that worked. As a result... Grew up in a win-lose environment. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Like everything, you've got to win because you're likely to lose everything. And and so I had this mentality. It was all I'd ever seen. It's all I'd ever seen modeled for me in my home growing up was every man for himself and winner takes all. You guys know what I'm talking about? Every man for himself, winner takes all. And so here's the problem. I got married. And I thought my marriage was supposed to work exactly like my family where I grew up. that, That if you want things to go well, you've got to come out on top. Winner takes all. Don't raise your hands for this one. This is not the example where you're like, yeah, brother, I know what you're talking about. No. We'll be having marriage counseling right after the third service for you. So the problem is that this is a struggle many of us have. I'm not alone with this. We, we end up getting married, and when we find this person, and things go well at the beginning, but then we start to have some things where, where we're struggling in issues with our spouse, And one of the biggest difficulties that we have is to believe that our spouse is on the same team. We we think that they're on a completely different team. Truth is, it's actually not even on the same team. It would be nice if we understood that. But biblically, it's, it's one step further. Not even on the same team. The Bible says the two are becoming one. How many of you ever heard the phrase, if your spouse loses, you don't win? Anybody ever heard that one? If your spouse loses, you don't win. This is one of the truest axioms in all of marriage. If your spouse loses, you do not win. 
But putting that into practice in real life is incredibly difficult, isn't it? I mean, how many of us, though, we're going to win at all costs? That's just who we are. We've got the competitive nature. We were the little child, youngest one, baby, thank you, one honest man with me today. The rest of you liars <laughs> need to repent. I'd like to be a witness to your marriage when you're like, oh, honey, no, it's okay. You, you, you win. You win the fight. Yeah, no, honey, you're always right. No, I don't think that's the way it works. So come on, we've got to be honest with ourselves. One of the secrets to marriage, what I want us to talk about today and next week is one of the great secrets to marriage is kill the rivalry. We have got to kill this rivalry that is developing. Now, some of you would say, I don't have a rivalry in my marriage. Great. We're going to talk about that in a minute. And if you pass the test, that's cool. I think what you're going to discover is there's a rivalry there you didn't know was there. And so over these two weeks, today and next week, we're going to wrap up the series with this one idea, how to kill the rivalry. Today, we're going to talk about killing the rivalry by putting your spouse first. And next week, we're going to talk about killing the rivalry by putting you first. And so whichever one you're more excited to hear just revealed the deepest issues of your heart, but it's okay. Keep that to yourself. Don't, don't share your self-revelation which one of those you want to hear. But anyway, the Bible actually does talk about when you should put yourself first. We're going to do that next week. So the passage we're going to use today is out of Philippians 2. If you've got your Bibles, you can turn with me. And I'm going to go ahead and tell you up front, this is not a marriage passage. But it is a people passage. It's a relationship passage. And it applies to marriage more than anywhere else, of course, if you're going to be in this kind of a relationship this close with someone. But for those of you that are single, those of you that are thinking, my marriage is good, I don't need this. I had one of our single people come up to me after the first service and say, that was great. That had nothing to do with marriage. I felt like you were talking to me about my boss the entire way. And so, look, if this is going to make sense between you and your spouse, wonderful. I'm happy that that helps. But this also may help you with your next-door neighbor. It may help you with the worker. It may help you with the boss. It may help you with other people in life. So nobody has a reason to tune me out. Good? All right, we're going to start in verse 3. If you don't have Bibles, it's on the screen. And here's what it says. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. And have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man, and, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Honestly, this passage is very clear, self-explanatory, very obvious if we can get past the first few words. The rest of the passage is easy to do. The first few words, do nothing out of selfish ambition. And the truth is, this is hard for us to really understand who he's talking to. Raise your hand if you would say you're selfish and you have a lot of selfish ambition. Wow, thank you for being honest. Typically, we don't, we don't think that's us. Most of the time, though, there's another version that I think will help us understand what he's talking about. And it translates it this way. It says, do nothing out of rivalry. Because sometimes it's very difficult for us to be honest and say, yeah, I got a lot of selfish ambition and I'm always trying to run over my spouse in order to get my way. Very few of us would raise our hand for that. And, and so we don't see the passage for what it is and we don't allow it to help us. And so I think for our imagination today, for us to understand what Paul was talking about, what he was encouraging us to do, is we need to, to use that version that says, do nothing out of rivalry or vain conceit. Nothing out of rivalry. Yeah, how many of you have a, a sports team you like? 
doesn't matter what sport, what league, what anything. Everybody's got a sports team. Okay, then that also means you have a team you hate, right? Come on. Y'all know what I'm talking about. Yes. And, and you're, you're one of those people that's like, it doesn't matter who they're playing. As long as that team loses, you are a happy camper. You, you ju- you ju- exactly. You judge two things every game day. Did your team win or did that team lose? So if you've been around Grace Life any, any while, you figured out I'm an avid Duke fan. And I think those of you that hate Duke that still come to church here, look at that. There you go. Yeah. And anyway, you know, I'm one of those people, a good Duke fan. I believe this emphatically. A good Duke fan is an ABC fan, and that means anybody but Carolina. That's, that's, and it's the uh, light blue Carolina, by the way. Don't everybody get offended here in Columbia. Uh, and, and so we're always wanting to see Duke win no matter what. We have a rivalry. So if you can imagine this kind of rivalry, this thing creeping into your marriage, and, and the thing about a rivalry is you always have an opposing team that you want to see lose at all costs. And unfortunately, many of our marriages get to that point. Yours may not be there, and if so, that is awesome. But I want you to watch for warning signs as we talk today of little pieces that might be creeping in. And so the first thing I want to do today is share with us, if we have a rival relationship, what begins to show up? And there are three predominant things I think you'll begin to see if you have a rival relationship. The first one is this. They will have opposite interpretations of your actions. Opposite interpretations of your actions. Whatever you do is is interpreted in a completely different way. Now, we'll just go with the sports analogy because it's the easiest way to understand this. But if you're watching a basketball game, the other team says, Oh, man, what a foul. How did they not call that? How did they not see that? What a foul. And if it's your team, you're saying, Oh, man, they barely touched each other. Are you kidding me? And it definitely didn't affect the shot. Get over it, right? Two completely different interpretations. If you have a rival spouse then someone takes the smallest thing and turns it into the biggest thing. Let me give you an idea of what I'm talking about here because I work with a lot of couples. It starts out like this. On the morning after your wedding, she looks, and there are socks on the ground. And she thinks, oh, that is so cute. I have a man to leave socks on the ground. And then she's thinking, He's even got a strong sock game. Those are good socks, you know. Look at that. What a man I've married. This is cute. But then after about a month of picking up his socks on the way to to make the bed or whatever, she she says, hey, honey, you know, would you mind just on occasion, you know, put your socks in the hamper? Matter of fact, it's only like right over there. And I know you like basketball. Let's make a game of it. You know, just like throw the socks in the hamper. It'd be awesome. And guess what? A month later, the socks are still on the ground. You know, you go to bed at night, take the socks off, you just fill them down or whatever it is you do. And a couple of months in, we're fighting about something else. Chicken's not good. Chicken's burned or chicken's raw. It doesn't matter which one. And he kind of stops eating and she says, well, well what's wrong, honey? Well, you know, nothing. Well, what's wrong, honey? Seriously, you know, uh, the chicken is just kind of, kind of burned. Well, you just don't care about me. What do you mean? You never pick up your socks. I ask you to pick up your socks, and if you wouldn't, you you won't do the very thing I ask you to do. You just don't love me. You don't care about me. I'm going to my mother's over socks. Yes, over socks. We take tiny things and turn them into really big things when we believe the person is on the opposing team, when we don't think they're on the same side. My wife and I, we're like great at misinterpreting what each other did. We're, We're like the kings of this. And we would get so offended 
And we did this so early on in our marriage. Whatever somebody would do, whatever somebody would say, it was completely taken the other way. And, and I don't know how many of you know this, but it's a biblical concept because the Bible says that Satan is the prince of the power of the air. How many of you have ever witnessed this? You speak words, and, and Satan comes and grabs them in the middle of the air, and he twists them around, and he throws them into the ear of your spouse, and they hear something completely different from whatever you said, right? Come on, y'all know what I'm talking about? It's like you come home and say, hey, honey, the house looks, looks great today. What are you saying? The house always looks bad every other day. I don't ever clean. Are you saying I can't keep a nice house? Whoa, wait a minute. What happened here? Prince of the power of the air. Got to watch out. The smallest things become the biggest things when there are two rivals, when there are two rivals. Second thing that happens is you have opposite responses to your failures. Keep the sports analogy going. Someone shoots and they completely miss everything. Your team can say, that's all right, man. You're going to make it next time. Just keep shooting. The other team starts going, air ball, air ball, right? Somebody's not on my team ordering pizza while I'm talking. And it's very sad, though, some of our marriages get to the point where you come home and, and, and something has not gone well. Maybe you've been fired from a job and, and your marriage is broken down to the extent that your spouse says, yeah, well, I know why you got fired because you, you do the very same things at work you do here. You treat your boss like you treat me. You treat your coworkers like you do with your children. Yeah, I know why you got fired. It's a rival spouse. But a spouse that's on the same team says, that's, honey, we're going to get through this. We'll figure it out. We're going to make this work. Even if they might know some of the things that caused you to get fired. And they begin to pray for you about those things. But they're still on your team. And as a result, we begin to guard ourselves. That we're the people that when we get fired, we, we just keep getting dressed and going to work every day, even though we just go to the library or the park or something, because the last thing that you ever want to do is acknowledge your failures to someone who's going to point out that you shot an air ball. And you don't feel safe. And you feel like you've, you've got to take care of yourself. And so you, you stop talking about your hopes and your dreams and saying, someday I'm going to do this and someday I'm going to do that, because the next time you get into a fight, you're going to say, oh, yeah, well, you're such a loser. You can't even do this. You've been saying you'll do it for 10 years. And, I mean, it gets to be really petty stuff. We're not talking about, like, you know, uh, invent something or get a college degree. It becomes like you said you'd clean out the garage two years ago, and you never I mean, we begin to attack each other for anything we can, anything, to say your team is not as good as our team. We're the better team third thing that happens is we have opposite expectations for your performance here's the truth somebody in your team believes in you they believe in you they believe that you're going to have the best day of your life tomorrow and every day they believe that you're going to have the best day of your life again that you're going to do something you've never done that you're going to make it happen you know, if we keep following the sports thing, you know, so many times before a game, you hear all the commentators talk about, man, in order for this team to win today, their star player has got to have the game of his life. And, and everybody's saying, he can do it, he can do it, he's going to have the best game ever, he's been playing really well, and that's the kind of spouse you want. But unfortunately, sometimes we have the kind of spouse that says, you're going to do what you've always done. You're going to, you're going to you know, fall down at the most important times, you're going to miss the most important shots. You're going to go apply for this job again. You're going to not get it just like you have every other job you've never gotten. I mean, this is nothing's going to change for you. 
It's a rival spouse. For those of you that have been around Grace Life any period of time, one thing my wife and I have tried to do is be very transparent about the difficulties in our marriage early on because we wanted to, to be able to give people hope and to help you understand we're not preaching stuff from up here. We're preaching what we've had to live out and walk through. And I'm going to tell you that if we could go back in time and if you were to look at us, being rivals would be one of the top three reasons our marriage was a disaster. It might be number one. I don't really know. There are several really strong competitors for why we weren't doing so well. But one of them is that if you had looked at us and said, they are on your side, both of us would have said, no, they are not. The last person in the world that we could trust was each other. We truly thought each other was out to get each other for everything. Now, if you were here last week, I talked about the different things that God's doing in people's lives, and and I talked about the reason for that is because we were both so deeply wounded coming into marriage. We had so many soul wounds that we interpreted everything the other said and did through that lens. That was just how everything was, was filtered for us. So it didn't take long for us. Matter of fact, I'm gonna make some of you feel really good about where you are. We quit our honeymoon. Come on, anybody got that story? We quit our honeymoon. We were on a European tour, and we said, enough of that. We gave up. We went home two weeks early because we couldn't stand each other. Anybody that bad, right? I mean, come on. We had reached a point where just from day one, we were already, everything I said to her was the way her father had said it. Everything she said to me was the way some other people had said things that had hurt me my whole life. We, we began day one wishing that we had never gotten married because we saw everything that the other did as an intentional effort to hurt the other person. And, and you lose sight. When you have a rival relationship, you lose sight of the idea that this other person is a good-willed person and they want your best. But if you'd have met my wife and I in our first year of marriage, we would have said, oh, no, this person does not want our best. There were times where we wondered if we should eat what the other one had prepared for us. And that's really not an exaggeration. I mean, if we had known some guy named Vinny from New Jersey, we would have employed him. And uh, that was not good. But So what do you do? Well, first of all, I want to give you hope. If you're in a place, and quite often this is the way it is, everybody thinks it's just you. You come to church and you look around the room and you go, well, look, everybody's sitting beside their spouse. Look, they're holding hands. He's got his arm around her. Oh, they just look so happy. It's just us. It's just us. We're the only ones like this. The truth is, no, you're not. Way too many of us are like this, and few of us ask for help until it's too late. So I want to give you hope. If my wife and I could be in the place that we couldn't even complete our honeymoon, there is hope for anybody. Right? If God could bring us to this point, God can bring you to that point. But in order to do it, it's really going to come down to something very, very simple. You have got to kill the rivalry. The rivalry has got to stop at all costs. How do you kill the rivalry? Well, again, two ways today we're going to talk about this one. Put your spouse first. And if you'd say, how do we do this? It's in the passage. It's incredibly clear. So now we're just going to go back and and just do what the passage said. The first thing he told us was this. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Count your spouse as more significant. Look, this is simple humility. There's nothing else to it. Simple humility. Here's the reality. The rival spouse you're married to, 
this person that you think is out to get you at every end, they are also God's son or daughter. They are God's son or daughter. He created them. He created them for good. He created them with skills, with talents, with abilities, strengths. Do you see the strengths or do you just see the weaknesses? Have you stopped seeing the person you're married to as a treasured child of God? When I do premarital, I always try to put holy fear into someone over this. I look them in the eye, one of them, to say it's the man. And I say, do you understand that you are looking at God? There are 7 billion people on the planet, and you're saying, God, out of 3.5 billion of your daughters, we just round it to 50-50 for the sake of it, out of 3.5 billion of your daughters, I choose this one. And I will treasure her. And then I point to the picture of my little daughter that's, that's behind me, behind my desk, and say, do you, do you know how I talk about her in my sermons? I, oh, yeah, yeah, we hear how you talk about little Sophie. Everybody knows you love little Sophie. Y'all know I love little Sophie, right? What do you think I'm going to do to the man that tries to hurt her? And then I do the exact same thing and point to the pictures of my, my little boys and say, what do you think God's going to do? You are married to someone who is a child of God. And I want to remind you of a story in the Bible because too often we think God's on our side, right? Come on, somebody's got to be honest here. We think God's on our side because we're right. We are more right. Our spouse might be a little right, but we are more right. They should have never done that. They should have never said that. They should have never acted that way. Surely God's going to come rushing to my fence because I'm the better one today, right? Y'all look holy. I'll just tell you my life story. And there was a story in the Bible with Joshua. God told Joshua to go conquer Jericho. Now follow that. God gave orders for Joshua to destroy Jericho. And as, as Joshua looked out, he saw a man standing with a drawn sword. And he said, are you for us? Or are you for our adversaries? And his answer was, neither. But I'm the commander of the Lord's army. Are you kidding me? Yeah, I'm not for you, I'm not for them, I'm not against you, I'm not against them. I'm here to do what God wants done, nothing else. I'm here for God. Wait a minute, so, tell, so follow this. If the one time that God tells one of his people to go and destroy them, he can't even take sides then, do you think that when you marry another one of God, God's children that he's taking sides? I mean, just imagine in the middle of a fight, angel shows up in your kitchen with sword drawn. And you look and go, are you with me or my wife? What are you going to do? And he says, neither, but I'm here for God's will. I'm here for what God's doing. See, we think God is choosing sides, but he's not. And one of the biggest problems we have with with the rivalry is we see two sides where God doesn't. In your marriage, you see two sides. God only sees one. God sees what he's doing in both of your lives to bring you to one purpose. He's taken two. He's making one. There's one. We see two. That's the biggest default from the beginning. Second thing he says is let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. It's very simple. Put your spouse's interest first. Put your spouse's interest first. What do they need? What do they want? What would help them succeed. Do you even know 
Do you even ask questions? Chances are not. Usually, it's not a very good debate tactic or a way to win a fight by asking a sincere question in the middle of a fight, right? Somebody with me on that one? And so we don't. And I would be the king of telling my wife everything she needed to know. Well, this is what your problem is. Well, this is what you always do. Well, this is what you never do. I, I would never ask a question. Again, I was raised in a every man for himself, winner takes all environment. And, and that's just what I believed. And I believed it for way too many years. And for, for the rest of you, I hope that you get this way earlier on in your marriage. Just stop the fight and say, how can I help you? Why does it matter to you when I say that? Why does when I say this, it hurt you so badly? When I said that, why did you take it that way? If we could ask more questions, Stephen Covey says in his book, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, one of them is this. Seek first to understand. Seek first to understand, then to be understood. We we need to do more of saying, wait a minute, you're a child of God. What's going on in your soul? Why do you see it this way? What What are you hearing me say? What? We need to ask these questions, and we need to consider this. What is best for them? What does God want for them? And if you really want to do what is in the best interest of your spouse, then pray for them. And by the way, asking God to smite them and strike them with lightning and correct them is not praying for them. Doesn't count. At our worst fights, at our worst times, when we weren't even talking to each other, we'd go to bed, my wife would think I was asleep, and I would feel her lay her hand on my back and pray for me. Got to give her credit. I didn't do that. She did. Pray for them. And you may think, wait a minute, how can I pray for them? We're in the worst fight ever. This person is ridiculous. This person thinks this and this person says that. Their perspective is so far off. They think the worst of me. They're my rival. They're not even on my team. Let me remind you, God says, if you want to go this far, if your marriage has gotten this far, God says, pray for your enemies. Bless them and do not curse them. If you really want to see your spouse changed, this is the best thing you could do. Pray for them. Pray that God would bless them. And you may think, no, I want God to fix them. I want God to correct them. I want God to rebuke them. No, no, but follow this. The greatest blessing that anyone could ever have would be to know God greater would be to have a deeper revelation of who he is. And the more that you understand who God is, the more that you're going to understand who you are. The more that you see God's holiness, the more that you're going to see your sinfulness. The more that you get close to God, the more that you're going to become more like him. Isn't that what you want from your spouse and for your spouse? Then the best thing you can do when you can't say anything nice at all is pray God will bless them. That God would bless them. Finishes with this, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Now, look, my hope for you is that this is not a physical death that you have to go to, not like Jesus, but. Here's the number three. Serve your spouse to the point of death. That means to the death of your wants, to the death of your will, to the death of your laziness, to the death of your selfishness, to the death of everything that stands in the way right now. Let it die. Let it die. 
I'm a little OCD if you don't know me. I, I don't operate well in, in mess and chaos. And, and so, like, we'll sit down to watch TV at night. We've got four kids, and there's usually, like, popcorn everywhere and toys everywhere and blankets everywhere. And it's, it's, I can't watch TV like that. TV is supposed to be relaxing, and I can't relax if I literally feel like I am in the eye of a hurricane. And so I'm one of those people that's like, pause the TV, all right, you put the blankets away, you get the vacuum cleaner, you just, this is just how I function. And so one of the things that I do, I go to bed early on Saturdays. It's kind of like a job thing because Sundays come real early for me. And I get up on Sundays, and I, I go back through my notes again and again and again, and I'm praying and asking God to move here on Sunday mornings and things like that. So Sunday mornings begin like before the roosters, you know. It's, it's early. Nobody else is up. And, and I cannot pray and think if, if I'm worried about my knees getting like pancake syrup on them, you know. And, and once my wife came to understand, and this isn't like everybody else in our house, but once she, she came to understand, this is just who I am. When I go to bed early on Saturday nights, and, and usually even before the kids sometimes, uh, just, just how early it is, she, she will make sure that, that the house is clean. Our house is never as clean as it will be on a Sunday morning for me. That's serving your spouse. She's actually serving all of you guys when she does that, by the way. You get better sermons. It's what she does. Not because she needs it, not because she wants it, but because she knows it's what makes my life work the best. What do you do to the point of serving your spouse? And I'm just going to go ahead and say this. I know right now the objection that some of you are doing up here in your head because I used to do the same objection. When I was young and our marriage was struggling and people would sit down with her, people would sit down with me and they'd say, look, Jimmy, you just got to change. You've got to stop this. You've got to do this. You've got to start treating her better and putting her first. You don't understand. If I put her first, she's going to see that as like a sign of surrender. It's a sign of weakness. She's going to think she's right. If you're ever in a fight, I mean, come on, anybody, like you just can't give up in a fight, right? God help us all. Somebody's got to go first. Some point, someday, somebody's got to go first. And if you can imagine again that rivalry, right? We've got Duke and we've got North Carolina, and they're playing the final game of the season. They always do. And I want you to imagine one team. It doesn't matter which team. They walk into the room, and one team says to the other, hey, you know, we've just decided to like lay this whole rivalry thing down. We're here for your best tonight. If you miss a shot, don't worry. We'll just give you the ball back. Let you have another try. How's that going to go? The other team, of course, immediately is going to say, well, good, then we're going to mop the floor with you. And so I know your greatest fear is if you start doing these things, that your spouse will take great advantage of it and seek to destroy you in every fight that you have. And all I'm going to say is, somebody's got to lay it down. Somebody's got to go first. And at some point, at some point, you will make a difference. At some point, your refusal to strike back, God will convict them. At some point. But somebody's got to go first. Here's the truth. Rivalry is most evident and most clearly revealed by how you fight. Many of you sitting here listening this morning might say, well, our marriage isn't as bad as yours, Jimmy. We don't have that kind of story. I'm not even sure we have a rivalry. Well, let me tell you this. You can tell if you have a rivalry. First of all, you should probably have already picked up on it by now. It's a lot of clues. But most clearly in the way you fight, look at the things you say and look at the goal you have when you fight. Rivalry is most clearly revealed and most evident 
by how you fight. Do you fight to win or to resolve? Come on, that's the easiest question there is. When you get into a fight with your spouse, and I know some of you call them discussions. When you get into a discussion with your spouse, do you do it to win or to resolve the issue? Do you fight to defeat or do you fight to unify? The way you fight will will reveal the degree of rivalry in your marriage. Every sports team has a rivalry. I want you to think about this, though. We've all seen it happen at least once. Where two great rivals come together, and for one day they lay it down. For one day. And it usually is some sort of catastrophe that has come upon one or the other team. Some students have died at their school, or a teammate died, or or something that's really catastrophic. As a result, they'll come together. They'll have a moment of silence before the game. Both teams will be wearing some sort of black insignia to remember the person on their their jersey. And, And they say, today, today we stand here unified because there's something more important going on than this game. Why does it take something like that to make us realize there's something more important going on? There is something way bigger going on in your marriage than you winning this fight. If we could get to a point that that we could say it doesn't matter who wins this game because there's such a bigger perspective. Actually, that's what Paul began with. If you noticed, we started at verse 3. The first two verses, he set the stage. He set the context for saying, before I even tell you, let me just go ahead and let you know there's a much bigger perspective. And here's what he said. If there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any comfort from love, if there's any participation between the two of you in the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God that lives within you, if there's any affection, if there's any sympathy, then complete my joy by being of the same mind, by having the same love, by being of full accord in one mind. See, here's what he's trying to say. You were destined for hell. You were going to die eternally. You were going to pay for your sins with your very life. You were going to be punished for never ending. And then Jesus rescued you. And you have eternity together. And because of your common experience of salvation, because of the fact that both of you were headed there, and now you're headed here, and you're going to have eternity together, how can you not see something more than the fight you're having today? How can you not see what God is doing? How can you not see what He would want to do through you in the world? How can you not see your children and your grandchildren and taking walks on the beach at 90 years old holding hands? How can you not lift up your eyes from the game and say, Who cares who wins today? There's something bigger going on. And we've got a whole lot more in common than we do apart. Now, I know some of you are here without your spouse. Your spouse is not a believer, and you would try to object to everything I just said. Unfortunately, you can't. Because Scripture tells you to still treat them exactly the same way so that by your actions, you would win them to Christ. Kill the rivalry. 
kill the rivalry. The game that you are playing today that you think you've got to win so bad is not important in light of the common experience that we have, in light of our future, in light of what God has done for us. Kill the rivalry. Put your spouse first. I want to close by talking to those of you that have yet to make Jesus your king. The truth is the very life that you want, the marriage you want, everything that you want is going to come from when you are living in God's will for your life. And the longer that you're living outside of God's will for your life, the more you're going to struggle for that. And so here at Grace Life, I like to try and make sure this is not about a free ticket to heaven. Jesus died for more than for you to have a free ticket to heaven. But Jesus died so that now, today, before heaven, you can live your life for his glory. So if you've never had that moment where you've looked at Jesus, time is compressed, 2,000 years crashed together, and you look at Jesus hanging on the cross and say, thank you for dying for me. I want to live for you. If you've never done that, I want to see, I want to help you do that here this morning. I want to see God touch your life. And so I'm not going to ask you to do anything weird or stand up or come down front. We're going to pray right where you're seated. Would you all join me? Right where you're seated, pray something like this to yourself and to God. Lord Jesus, I thank you that you died for me. And now I want to live for you. I thank you for your love, your mercy, your forgiveness. I thank you for dying a death that I deserve. And now I have one simple prayer today. That you would give me a life of great meaning and great purpose in your kingdom. Amen. Let's celebrate with those people. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Grace Life Podcast. For more information about us, you can go to gracelife.me. That's gracelife.me. You can also follow us on Facebook at facebook.com backslash gracelifeme and on Twitter at gracelifechurch.com.